Last week, we started our series on the seven letters to the seven churches. And we spent time in chapter one of the book of Revelation setting the stage. And part of that setting the stage or the context is that there is a promise that is given in the very beginning of the book of Revelation. Do you remember what that promise is? So the promise is this. Let's go to Revelation chapter 1. It says, Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear it and keep what is written in it, for the time is near. To be blessed is a pronouncement of God's favor. That's what we talked about last week. But this blessing is conditional. It is conditional because it says, blessed is the one who reads aloud. Blessed is the one who hears and then keeps. Now, to hear the word of the Lord is not just about hearing the words, but to actually discern what it means. To really dig into the word of God. That is to what it means to hear the word. And even though there are seven letters to seven different churches... The message is this, that even though there is a, each letter is given to a specific church, there is a universal application in each of these letters. What that means is that there is not just the letter to the church in Ephesus, there's a letter to you. To you individually, you should be able to take something away from each of the letters, and us as a church As a body, we are to take away something from each of these letters. Now, it says, blessed are those who hear and what? Keep. So we are not only to be hearers of the word, we are to be, as James wrote, what? Doers of the word. Thus, the application of that. We are to be doers of this. So if we take it in and we just have a good time, but don't do anything with it, we've missed the boat. And then we miss the blessing, the promise that Christ has given to each one of us. All right. So as we go through the letters, there's going to be a set process, a set way of going through each of the letters, a pattern that repeats itself. The first one is the image of Jesus. So each of the letters begin with the image of Jesus. And by the way, you will find each of these images in chapter one. We already covered them briefly, but we're going to go through them as we go through each letter. Who is Jesus? What's his nature? What's his character? Then we're going to see what he sees about each of the churches, And uh, there for each of the churches, there's both praise, rebuke, and sometimes harsh rebuke. I put it this way, the good, the bad, and the ugly. For most of the churches, there's some good, there's some bad. For some churches, it's just plain ugly. Then there's going to be a call to repentance within all of that. And finally, there's a promise that is given to each of the churches. And remember, this being universal, there's a promise then that we can apply to our individual lives and to Joy Church here. All right, so let's go 
with the first letter, the letter to the Ephesians, chapter 2, starting with verse 1. It says, To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, The words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. So here we have the image of Jesus. Remember, Jesus is this blazing light, his face brighter than the glowing radiance of the sun. John can barely even look at him. He is so bright. And Jesus is the source of all light, is he not? And he is the light of the world. He is also the creator. He is also the sovereign Lord so that he holds the seven stars in his right hand, the right hand being the hand of authority, the hand of power. He holds the seven stars in his hand. And the seven stars, if you remember, do you remember what the seven stars were? The angels, or we would say the pastors of each one of these churches, angels being messenger. So he has authority over all of those seven stars, and then there are seven lampstands. These lampstands represent each one of the churches. So here you have a picture of the sovereign creator, the light of the world, the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, walking among his churches. And because he is the source from which all the pastors come, he is the source from which all of the true churches come, he knows them very intimately. He knows everything about them. So let's go on to verse 2 here. Verse 2 and 3. I know your works, your toil and patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. Now, for this to make much sense, to have it have much meaning or impact, I've got to give you a little bit of context about the city in Ephesus, the context in which this church is planted. So let me tell you a little bit about Ephesus. Ephesus is on the western shore of what we would now call Turkey. It's still there. It's still there as a city, and it was a major port. It was a major port of commerce. If you came from Rome, you would most likely go into the port at Ephesus, a wealthy city, much commerce. At one time in the first century BC, Ephesus had over 250,000 people as its population. Apart from Rome, it was the second largest city in the Roman Empire. It's one source I had, I'd have to go back to it, said it might have been the second largest city in the world at that time with 250,000 people. Now, this particular city also had a very large amphitheater that could seat 24,000 people. And this is actually talked about in Acts so if you sit, if you stand where that person is sitting, and it's hard to see, but you can see where that person, if that person speaks, the whole amphitheater, because of how it's designed, can hear everything. It's just an amazing construction. And from the amphitheater, the top of the amphitheater, you could look down, do you see that broad 
pavement, the Broadway, so to speak, that would lead directly into the town. But what really made the city of Ephesus wonderful in the eyes of the people is this. It is known as the Temple of Artemis, or as the Romans called her, Diana. It was considered one of the seven wonders of the world. And the dimensions were about from, if you take where the steps were, the marble, over 400 feet long and over 200 feet wide, bigger than a football field. It was one of the seven wonders of the world. This is actually a replica that was built in northern Turkey. Now, Temple Diana, she was considered a goddess, and it was the cult of Diana, which meant that if you were part of the cult, especially a woman, it could be a man, but a woman, you could be part of the cult by being a prostitute for the temple. So when you talk about temple prostitutes, they were all around. And by the way, in the center of the city was a large brothel. And they even had on one of the paving stones directions on how to get to the brothel that because it was so well known. The level in the city, the morality was notoriously low. People were shameless, stupor, superstitious, vile, and violent. A Greek philosopher, Heracletus, who was a resident of Ephesus, he reportedly said this, the morals of the temple were worse than the morals of beasts, for even promiscuous dogs do not mutilate each other. Finally, in addition to this, the Romans themselves built a temple to Caesar, because remember, Caesar was considered a god, and you would have to go, and you would be forced by the Roman prefects, and that would be like the, a major level in uh, armed forces here. You would be forced by the major to say Caesar is Lord, but of course Christians didn't and refused to do that because there is only one Lord, and Jesus is Lord. Does this give you a little better context for the city of Ephesus? Imagine if we, as a church, were plopped down in the middle of that and how difficult that would be. So now... Go back to the words of Jesus to this church. He says, I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance. Remember, he knows them intimately. He says, I know how, I know how hard you've been working. I know the toil and the endurance that it's taken you to live in this city and to do the work that I have given you, which is to be a faithful witness unto me. He says, I know your works. Now, by the way, if you've ever had to stand firm in Christ Jesus, you know that it's not necessarily hard physical work, but it takes a toil on you mentally, emotionally, spiritually, and all of those things then take a physical toll on you. And to be able to endure in that takes a great, great strength. I think of our brothers and sisters in China who are under true persecution right now. There's a pastor who uh, did some education 
for some people in China. And by the way, these people had to travel 13 hours on a train. They sat in a room that was 700 square feet at the most, hard wooden benches, no air conditioning. And they wanted to learn. And so he said when he taught, he taught from all day long, eight in the morning to early evening because they were that hungry. But at one time he asked them, so what happens if they find out that I'm here? And they said, oh, you'll be deported within 24 hours. And he said, well, what happens to you? Oh, we go to jail for three years. Now, there were 22 people in that class. He asked how many people had gone to jail. 18 of them had raised their hands. I know your work. I know your toil, your patient endurance. You see, What causes somebody to be willing to go to jail and to endure all of that? It is for this. He says, I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake. It is for the sake of Jesus Christ, his name, that they are enduring patiently. This is not Christianity for a cause. This is not Christianity for social justice. This is not Christianity for wage equity. This is Christianity for the sake of Christ and his name alone, period. He's the light of the world. He is the Alpha and Omega. He is the beginning and the end. He is the line of the tribe of Judah. He is the Lamb who was slain. And His name and His name alone is worthy of all honor and praise and glory. So He praises them. But He also praises them for standing steadfast in truth. Standing against false teachers who want to infiltrate the church says this in verse 2 and then 6. I know your works, your toil, your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found to be alive. In those days, there were a lot of people infiltrating the church and saying that they were apostles and they had false messages. But he is commending them because He said, I know you can't bear them. I know that you have proven them false. And the only way they could prove them false is because of God's word and what they had been taught. He also says this, yet you have this, you hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. So who were they? We actually don't have a a lot of information on them. They're actually in the third letter. They're mentioned there as well in the third letter to Pergamum. I'm going to spend more time on them there. But let's just put it together with the false prophets and and these that they were leading people astray. But I want to go back to false apostles right now. False apostles. You know, we've covered this a couple times in Bible study, these false apostles, and I know I've mentioned it at least once in a sermon about the New Apostolic Reformation, which there are apostles or so-called apostles. But let's make this clear. A true apostle has to be called by Christ, was present to see his life, 
death, and resurrection. There were miraculous signs and wonders, and they preached the pure gospel. Let's be very clear. There are no modern-day apostles. The reason I'm saying this is because in our day and age, people have declared themselves to be apostles. How many of you are familiar with LinkedIn? LinkedIn? Okay. Facebook. Facebook is for anybody, friends on Facebook. LinkedIn is for business professionals. When I was in the business world, I was on LinkedIn. I kept it as a pastor. Occasionally, I get requests from people who want to be my friend, so to speak, on LinkedIn. But I'm careful about who I do that on a professional basis. So there was a fellow, he said, well, he's just been made a pastor in a local church in Phoenix. And would I connect with him on LinkedIn? I said, well, before we do that, could I at least find out more about your church? So uh, he gave me the website. And on the website, it didn't take me long. Because here is a fellow who is supposedly an apostle. He calls himself an apostle, Ray Flores, visionary founder. So that's on their website as their leader. And when I read more about it, I can tell it's from this new apostolic reformation. So I declined the friendship. I also let him know, though, why I declined, because I believe this is to be a false movement with much false heretical teaching. And by the way, there are a number of websites for regarding the new apostles and how to spot them. And if you're interested in that, I can certainly give you more information about it. I do this because this is what Jesus said. He said, we are not to follow false apostles. We are to really discern what is the spirit in truth about what people are teaching. Jesus said this, you cannot bear with those who are evil. Now, I think a better translation is this, you cannot tolerate those who are evil. So I think Jesus was really saying this, he is praising the Ephesians for being intolerant of doctrine that would lead people astray. This is very different, isn't it? to be praised for being intolerant. Yet this is exactly what Jesus has done. He has praised the church for being intolerant against false doctrine. And I know even saying it this way makes people uncomfortable because we live in a day and age not where the altar is Christ Jesus, but it is an altar of tolerance. And you must worship at that altar of tolerance. And if you don't, You're small-minded, bigoted, and so forth. Put whatever name you want on there. That's what the culture says. You must tolerate everything. And by the way, the culture says tolerance is the same as acceptance. So you must accept every other God that people worship equally as Christ Jesus. You must then, as the Roman, uh, Roman soldier did, say, you must say, that Caesar is Lord, and we say, no, it is only Christ and him alone. And if that makes me intolerant to you, fine, because I know Christ has praised us for that. 
This is a difficult lesson. Let me put it in, a, in another manner here. Ignatius of Antioch wrote a letter to the Ephesians uh, in the year 100 to 110, somewhere in there. And he said this about the Ephesians. You all live according to truth, and no heresy has a home among you. Indeed, you do not so much speak as, as listen to anyone if they speak of anything except concerning Christ Jesus in truth. So I guess the question this morning is, could this be said of you? Could this be said of our church? So Jesus sees this of them and he gives them praise. But he also sees something that needs to be changed. He said, but I have this against you. You have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Brothers and sisters, our relationship to Christ Jesus is one of love. It is one of love. Out of love, God sent his son for us. Out of love, Christ died for us. Indeed, our relationship is because God first loved us. In 1 John chapter 4, verse 10, it says, In this is love. Not that we have loved God, but he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. And the message in this, in Christ Jesus, God reconciled us to himself because of his love for us. So we must have a relationship of love. Now, I know that love can go through many different cycles, right? It can go through many different cycles. Sometimes there's ups and downs. And in marriage, there's a good way to talk about those ups and downs of marriage. Some marriages, they go down, but then they rebirth themselves, so to speak, in the love that they had for one another. But it's not always the case. When Heidi and I, before Heidi and I were married, we went to something called Engaged Encounter. It was a weekend retreat for engaged couples. And during that retreat, a poem was written called The Wall. It's stuck with me ever since. I'm not going to read the whole thing, but I'm going to read part of it. Their wedding picture mocked them from the table, these two whose minds no longer touched each other. They lived with such a heavy barricade between them that neither battering rams of words nor artilleries of touch could break it down. Somewhere between the oldest child's first tooth and the youngest daughter's graduation, they lost each other. Throughout the years, each slowly unrambled the tangled ball of string called self. And as they tugged at stubborn knots, each hid their searching self from the other. Sometimes she cried at night and begged the whispering darkness to tell her who she was. Once he wanted to tell her how afraid he was of dying, but fearing to show his naked soul, he spoke instead of the beauty of her eyes. And slowly... 
the wall between them rose, cemented by the mortar of indifference. One day, reaching out to touch each other, they found a barrier they could not penetrate, and recoiling from the coldness of the stone, each retreated from the stranger on the other side. For when love dies, it is not in a moment of angry battle, nor when fiery bodies lose their heat. It lies panting, exhausted, expiring at the bottom of a wall it could not scale. Many couples start off in love, but then the routine of the life and the world overtakes them, and bit by bit they start to lose each other. And a wall of indifference rises between them. It should be no surprise that in the Bible, the church's relationship to Christ Jesus is one of the bride to the groom, it is one of marriage. Now, when a church is first born, when that marriage first begins, oh, there's a lot of excitement, isn't it? There's a lot of excitement in the love of Christ Jesus that seems to flow out everywhere. But then as you go along the way, routine settles in. How you do things just settles in, and you become focused more on the routine, and after a while, it's less about the love of Christ and just about that we gather together and we just do stuff together. And finally, you get the form without the love. And churches die. Happens with our young folks leaving church. I sat next to the plane on the, on the flight back home next to a young man. And I just asked him, so did you grow up in the church at all? And he said, well, kind of. He grew up Lutheran. Went to confirmation, but just kind of drifted apart. There wasn't any love of Christ Jesus. There was just the form that he did, that he went through. And of course, if it's form without the love, why stay? So Jesus is telling the church in Ephesus that if you have lost this love, I'm going to remove your lampstand. You will be no more. You see, Christ calls us to repent. He says, remember, remember from where you have fallen, he says. He says, remember the great love you had for me. He says to the church, remember, remember the first love that started everything. My love for you and then in turn, your love for me. And you need to rekindle that love you have. He's telling the church, rekindle the love you have for me and my name. Rekindle the love of the gospel message. For if you try to do the work of the world, even if your doctrine is perfect and true but have not love, you are nothing. And I will take your lampstand away. What would Christ say to you? What would Christ say to our church here? So there is a promise, a promise that is given. Verse 7, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. 
to the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Again, we have the exhortation to hear, right? Hear to be able to take it in. If you really hear, if you really take this in, if you rekindle the love you have for Christ Jesus, if you are willing to be intolerant of any false doctrine and teaching regarding Christ, regarding God, regarding his word, if you stand firm in the truth, if you have that faith in him, by that faith, you will conquer. Not that you can do it, but that Christ has conquered. And we get to this wonderful gospel message. It says, we... It says, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Now, our first reading came from Genesis. And it was, do you remember what happened in Genesis? Adam and Eve sinned. God said, I'm going to kick you out, lest you eat from the tree of life and live forever in your sin and thus live forever separated from me. I'm going to banish you from the garden. But the gospel promises this in Christ Jesus. You are reconciled with him throughout eternity. And you can have eternal life with him. We have the promise of complete and eternal redemption in Christ Jesus. This is a gospel promise made here at the very end to the church of Ephesus. You will be in Christ Jesus around the throne, around the lamb who was slain, around the line of the tribe of Judah, singing with all of the saints and the angels and the multitude of the heavenly beings. Worthy is the lamb. This is the promise to you. This is the promise to the church. So the questions this morning are very simple but I think they are profound. Would Jesus praise you for knowing and keeping his word and its doctrine? And the other is, does your love of Jesus need to be rekindled? Let's pray. Glorious God, Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the truth of your word. We pray for the Holy Spirit to be strengthened and encouraged following Jesus in his truth and his righteousness and his love. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We hope that you've been blessed by this message. If you have any questions or you would like to grow deeper in your faith, please visit our website at joyccc.com. Again, that's joyccc.com. 